Hello everybody, my name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we're going to be deep diving and exposing the Side B theology movement, and specifically those who want to make the church gay by having gay leaders in the church. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. You're going to see some familiar faces if you followed this sort of movement long enough. You're going to recognize Greg Coles. You're going to recognize Art Pereira. Uh, he's the dude that was in the viral video from a couple of years ago about living with his you know, best friend who's straight and the idea that they've replaced a marriage with a friendship and it's kind of a perverted friendship. If you remember the, that viral clip from a few years ago, it's the same guy. He has risen through the ranks in this incestuous ecosystem of side B theology. The other person is, is Greg Coles. Greg Coles is the conciliary of Preston Sprinkle. Preston Sprinkle, uh, there's Revoice, which is one of the largest organizations at the forefront of the Side B Theology movement. And then you have the Center for Faith and Sexuality, and that is Preston Sprinkle's uh, organization, and they peddle Side B Theology. Now, Side B Theology is the notion that homosexual desires and attractions are not sinful and this is heresy because this is clearly sinful and yes sinful desires are in and of themselves sinful and yes sinful identities are incompatible with the christian life so christians should not be adopting sinful labels like gay christian and the same logic also applies to transgenderism and would logically carry over to pedophilia as well. So side B theology is theologically untenable, yet it is raging through the church. And these are some of the thought leaders behind that movement that we're going to be exposing in some never-before-aired clips today. So if you like woke preacher clips, you're going to like this video. And you're also going to want to subscribe if you are new. Uh, Evangelical Dark Web is a Christian news gathering and commentary ministry. You can support us over at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. That's linked in the description. But first, we're going to roll tape on uh, this conference that happened a couple weeks ago. So this material is fresh. It is less than 10 days old. So this is something that I've uncovered and doing some investigative reporting and this is the results so here we go obviously like i think one thing that you and i and people on all sides of this conversation would agree with is the reality that currently the proportion of lgbtq and same-sex attracted folks with historically christian sexual ethics who are leading in our churches is quite a bit smaller than the proportion of those folks who are in our churches mm -hmm. um, in other words disproportionately we don't have uh, LGBTQ and same-sex attracted folks in in leadership. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it's hard to calculate the numbers too uh, if people are not out at all. Um, so, all kinds of statistical problems. The the demographers among us, uh, you know, have have some work cut out for them. Um, but but I would just love to start by asking: um, Would you say it's a, it's a bad thing that we don't have many LGBTQ and same-sex attracted leaders that we know of? And if so, like. Why is that bad? What are we missing out on by not having those folks in leadership? Yeah, um, a few things. First of all, I worry whenever the church adds barriers and hurdles that scripture doesn't add. 
Uh, it reminds me of this moment where Jesus says that it is better to tie a millstone around your neck and turn yourself into a lake um, than to become a stumbling block and, and to block the little children from coming to me, you know? Um, I think it is not honoring to scripture when we add to scripture, especially when we add scripture in ways that keeps people from um, knowing the Lord and from pursuing a life of integrity with the Lord. Um, you know, for instance, I see the qualifications of a pastor, like I mentioned in Titus and First Timothy, and they don't seem to talk about what temptations you're allowed to experience if you're going to be a pastor. Uh, there's, I mean, there's clear boundaries, and you, you're clearly supposed to have a certain character, um, but they don't say, for instance, if a pastor has ever struggled with sexual immorality, mm. he can't be a pastor, which is good news because most of our pastors would not be able to be a pastor, you know? I mean, that just having been in ministry school, like half the guys I studied with had sex before marriage. Um, and so thank God that God is a redeemer and is constantly helping us to lead in healthier ways than sometimes we've been able to live out in our own lives. Um, but those boundaries aren't in scripture and it worries me that we seem eager to add them to scripture. Hmm. Um, I don't think that's healthy. I think Jesus drew the lines for us we needed. Um, so there are two major issues with this. And the first is that sort of woke argument about the proportion of homosexuals in the congregation is not, you know, equitable with the proportion of homosexuals in ministry leadership. And you see that sort of woke argumentation from art in the beginning. And the idea is that this is a problem that, you know, having gay pastors will solve. Now, the second major problem is where they tried to act like that being gay is not a reproach. That identifying as a homosexual or a transvestite is not a reproach and therefore would be disqualifying from being a pastor, elder, or deacon. You know, because in the Bible clearly says in 1 Timothy that you have to be above reproach. Identifying as a homosexual is a reproach. And I would say struggling with same-sex attraction is also a reproach. These things are not sins that really are compatible, compatible with the office of an elder. So the idea that you have ministry leaders that are not above reproach is not biblical, but obviously these people are side me theology theologians. They believe that same-sex attraction is not sinful. So therefore it's not a reproach. And then somehow they also logically insist that, identifying as a homosexual is not incongruent with the Christian life, but both of these are reproaches. So, and I'm not down for any of that, and neither should you be down for having gay pastors. This is just a bad idea. And it's ultimately, this is what split the Methodist church was the ordination of gay and transvestite pastors or ministers. The next clip has to do with what gay pastors can bring to the church. So we're going to see a lot of problems with this as well. But I'm certainly have thought about singleness. And I find that celibate gay folks have um, naturally and, and forcefully fought really deeply for a good and healthy view of singleness hmm. that most straight Americans don't have access to and have not experienced. Um, American adults don't know how to be single. Hmm. And the celibate gay community is a great witness um, and also a great encouragement to our single straight friends. 
Hmm. We understand ways of living in community and we understand the need for living in community to support healthy celibacy and healthy, hmm. healthy chastity. And so as more Americans are single, the church needs to be able to listen to single folks and folks who are deeply committed to singleness so they can minister to the single people in their congregations. What Art is saying is that we need gay pastors to help teach young people how to be single, but this is not a solution to the problem that they have. This is a mere stopgap. If anything, we need the church to help young people find mates. There's a complete uh, lopsiding of the dating pool right now. And we've talked about that on Evangelical Dark Web on multiple live streams. But here's the thing. We, it is not good for man to be alone. And that is why God you know, created the institution of marriage, because that's the only thing in creation that he said wasn't good. And so Adam and Eve, you know, Eve came out of Adam as a result. So it's not good for man to be alone. Marriage is good. It is desirable. And most people are not blessed with a gift of singleness. And if you struggle with sexual sin, you aren't blessed with that gift as well. It's clear. So that, you know, you are burning with passion. So if we want to go back to 1 Corinthians 7, yeah, that's not talking about people who struggle with sexual sin. So with that said, the idea that the church needs to embrace the loneliness of the young generation, no. We need to help people out of that loneliness. We need to help people find mates. We need to help people find marriages. We need to help people in marriages. We need to encourage young marriages. We need to actually be countercultural here. And that is an upcoming clip where he talks about how countercultural gay people are or people like him are, I should say. We're just talking about like, here are some reasons why it's bad when we're losing out on having LGBTQ and same-sex attracted folks leading. Um, I'd love to kind of like put a positive spin on that same question. Can you talk about some of those gifts, right? Some of the particular things um, that these folks can bring to the body, um, whether they're celibate or they're in opposite sex marriages, um, but folks who are committed to the, the church's historic Christian teaching, um, who are gifted and called, uh, who fit the qualifications for leadership. Again, we're not saying like, eh, he's gay, just put him in there, you know, but like, but folks who are, who, folks who are gifted and qualified for that, like, can you talk about some of those unique gifts um, that these folks can bring to the body as leaders? Yeah, uh, I mean, first of all, LGBTQ or same-sex attracted folks who live in celibacy or opposite sex marriage are an inherently deeply countercultural witness. Mm. Um, I, I was in youth ministry for a long time, and I remember sharing with a student once, um, he was an 18-year-old guy that I'd known for several years, and I was talking about my journey of landing in celibacy and um, as, a, as a gay person, and he was really quiet. I finally asked him, like, what are you thinking? And he said, I guess I really don't have an excuse in my own sexual integrity. Hmm. I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, look, like Christians have been telling me my whole life how I should live, but I don't see anyone actually pay a price to follow Jesus. Hmm. But if you're going to be celibate, like I don't really have excuse in whether or not I obey God. Uh, and that was really, it was a really cool moment um, yeah. of just like being reminded that actually LGBTQ folks who commit to celibacy um, or who wrestle with their desires and their the temptation of being a gay person and um, how do we surrender lust and how do we live lives of integrity and honesty it's a great way to carry a cross. 
in a world that desperately needs to be reminded that Jesus is worth carrying a cross for. Um, there's a great book called Single Gay Christian uh, in which the writer, um, one of my favorite um, descriptions of sort of why people have tension with a traditional sexual ethic is that it puts a cross on the shoulder of gay folks. And Greg, there's a chapter where you describe that actually the, the problem in the church is that we've removed a cross from everyone else. Mm. So when we put a cross for gay folks to carry, it feels abusive. But in reality, mm. all Christians should be carrying a cross. Our sin is not our cross to bear. That is the cross that Jesus bore. Jesus bore the cross for our sin. When Jesus says you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, our cross to bear is actually the suffering that comes with us following Christ. It is not our own sin. Jesus already paid the price for that. We can't pay the price with him, nor would we. And that was evident when Peter said that he would follow Jesus even unto death and then denied him three times. So just because, you know, Jesus said we bore, you know, have a cross to bear, that is not our sin. That is our suffering in Christ. And this is a common misconception inside B theology that they view our sin as our cross to bear. No. No. That, that is what Jesus did. Another thing he talked about was countercultural witness. But is it really countercultural to identify with the, one of the most powerful cultural institutions in America. And it's like, no, the answer is absolutely not countercultural at all. What is countercultural is to actually turn up the rhetoric and the anti-gay rhetoric. That's countercultural. That is opposite of where our culture is going. So this is not countercultural. And now we got a section coming up where you're going to see that microaggressions are a key theme with this this webinar that they did the idea that you know gay ministers experience so many microaggressions when trying to do their job that's a key theme that comes up with some of this job interview stuff going on right here so here we go i'd love to hear from you um what do you think it looks like for churches to create leadership qualifications and guidelines including things like you know, sexual ethics, but also including other aspects of theology and Christ-like character and spiritual and emotional maturity and just a whole bunch of stuff. Like, what does it look like for churches to create those kinds of qualifications, guidelines, expectations in a way that sort of equally advantages and disadvantages everybody, whether it's straight folks or LGBTQ, same-sex attracted folks? Yeah, um, I think leadership qualifications should be equal across how we interview and how what questions we ask and what standards we hold for instance i've applied for a job once and this was after i had come out and was living more openly as a celibate gay person felt called to do so um and as i shared that with the elders and i had like three or four interviews for this job they asked a lot of questions about my sex life and finally i looked at them and i said by the way i've mentioned multiple times i'm celibate there's no sex life to investigate here but I've got to ask, would you be asking any of these questions if I were heterosexual? And they said, well, no. And I said, okay, great. Can I ask if I were heterosexual and had a girlfriend, would you ask if I had slept with her or if I was sleeping with her actively? And they said, probably not. 
I said, yeah, that's, that's a problem for me. Um, I had no problem with them investigating my sexual character. I think pastors, when you're being, when you're hiring a pastor, you get to investigate their character. Um, you get to find out what they struggle with and you get to find out what that looks like and what support systems they have. That's wise. Mm-hmm. My issue was that I was being asked questions a heterosexual person wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, and so I think making sure that we actually set up systems that investigate all people equally and appropriately. Um, if we really care about sexual character in a pastoral candidate, we should have systems that ask about that well. Yeah. Um, Now, is it a legitimate grievance that he would be asked so many questions about his sexuality? No, that's not a legitimate grievance at all. But does he have a point that the pastor with the girlfriend should be asked if he's sleeping with her? Absolutely, he does have a point there. And that's probably the only point that he has. But you see the microaggression kind of language appear. There's a lot more of that where that came from. But this is in a series of progressions through the process of the webinar. And it builds towards this. So he's trying to create the argument that there's a double standard with gay ministers and straight ministers. And this is wrong. So here is where this will lead to. And it's the issue of restoration. And here we go. Yeah. Um, We should also know what it looks like to hold people accountable when they sin. And... I think one of the big barriers here, when we talk about applying equally to LGBTQ or SSA folks, um, this happens a lot with lay leadership. For instance, everyone has known someone who leads a worship team who's fallen into sexual sin. Like this is just like part of the church history experience we've all grown up with, right? I find that often we're really great about providing pathways for redemption when the sin is less scandalous to our eyes. And what that means is heterosexual folks are more likely to be offered a pathway to redemption than gay mm. folks. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen pastors who frankly committed really heinous sin and even abuse who should not have been offered a pathway back at that church, right? Should have been expected to seek counseling, a lot of other things, get pathways to redemption. Whereas someone who you know, had one um, homosexual encounter was in, in just disqualified and removed from leadership. Mm. I think we have to be careful about how easy it is to judge the sins we don't experience. Mm. And so it is easier for us, especially when an elder board is predominantly heterosexual and married, it is easier for us to judge harshly our heter- our homosexual siblings, our same-sex mm. attracted siblings. Again, I am not saying we don't call it sin. I'm saying that the consequences of that sin get treated with far greater severity mm. than a similar sin of heterosexual nature. For instance, when I was interviewing for this church, I asked them, can I just ask, if ever you found out that I had an encounter with a guy, can you tell me with honestly that you would respond to that in the same way that if you found out that I had hooked up with a woman? Hmm. And they said, no, those would get treated differently. Hmm. And I said, okay, great. As long as we know, you know, um, and by that, I mean, not great, but let's at least know that and name it. Um, yeah. Because- Art Pereira seems to get that not all sins are equal, but he does seem to believe that say, homosexual fornication is the same as heterosexual fornication. It's offense to God. And that's simply not the case. And the church was right to say, no, those would be treated differently because those are different sins. And the homosexual component of say said fornication is an added layer of sinfulness on top of an already grievous sin. So, These types of sins, I don't really think you should be offered a pathway 
of restoration for. I do think that there are some permanently disqualifying things. And I have, you know, I have an issue with pastors getting restored like you see in a lot of Pentecostal circles where, you know, very degenerate pastors are restored after cheating on their wife, you know, a second time or something like that. So this is a major issue in certain segments of evangelicalism. But if we're being honest, there's probably a lot of small town churches that do this kind of chicanery as well. But you see that he feels entitled to the idea that homosexual sin still needs to be, you know, cushioned and you guys don't understand. And there's this entitled mentality that, you know, gay ministers need a pathway to redemption when they commit gay sin at the same level of a straight minister. And it's just a ridiculous, whiny argument. And the idea is like, oh, great. We're on the same, or at least we're clear with each other. Not great. And he's just kind of like whining and moping about it because much of his grievances are about microaggressions and uh, these little uh, discrepancies in how homosexual sin is treated because he doesn't view the desires or the identity as sinful and he doesn't seem to view this sexual sin as an added component to the sexual sin that already exists in other people. So there's a huge disconnect with reality and God's standard within the side B theology camp. So I think the first thing is knowing the people under your care is so vital. Knowing what they offer and also what they are challenged by. Um, for instance, with LGBTQ folks, we tend to think their first challenge is sex, which sure, like some of us struggle with lust. Lust has certainly been a struggle for me, um, but LGBTQ folks or same-sex attracted folks are no more likely to struggle with sexual sin than our heterosexual siblings. Mm. Um, I mean, the statistics for um, sexual sin are pretty heinous across the board, you know? Um, and so... The question is actually, what do these people need to thrive under your care and also to thrive as leaders? The lack of self-awareness there, I just could not help but clip. Because let's be real, if you are wearing sexual degeneracy on your sleeve as part of your identity, yes, you are more likely to struggle with sexual sin than the person who doesn't. Just clear, obvious, it's like saying the person who's fat is more likely to struggle with gluttony. Or the person who's an alcoholic is more prone to addiction. These things are just so obvious on their face. Yes, the person who's calling themselves a gay Christian is more likely to struggle with sexual uh, immorality than the person who doesn't wear the, uh, that label or some other label that's associated with sexual degeneracy. This is just so plain and obvious, yet there's the denial of reality that's very evident in the side B theology camp. Now, the next one is just another denial of reality. This is the last clip before I kind of summarize a lot of the other stuff in the webinar that I learned from. So here we go. In your story that we can't unpack all the complexities of right now, um, but I would love if you'd be willing uh, to share with us one or two aspects of that journey that might be helpful for other folks who are thinking about supporting or being LGBTQ or SSA Christian leaders. I'd love to name a challenge I've had, and I would love to name a great gift I've been given. Ooh, delightful. Um, 
the first challenge that comes to mind in being a leader who is same-sex attracted is just that I'm just never believed. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have told the Lord, Lord, can I please just do the ministry instead of constantly proving to people I get to do the ministry? I spent so much of my life convincing other people that I'm not a threat. Um, when it was working in youth ministry, I had several pastors tell me, well, aren't you afraid people are going to think you're a pedophile or a danger to children? Mm -hmm. um, by the way, there is this like cultural mental connection to gay men and pedophilia, which is not statistically validated whatsoever. And in mm -hmm. fact, there's uh, there's roots of this lie becoming perpetuated by the government in early 1900s um, to control housing prices. It's a whole thing. Uh, yeah so it's we if someone wants to know more about that we can talk more about that um but very much a fear-mongering tactic to control where gay people can live you know yes yeah. yeah. out this is just so outside of reality it's just fun to watch and just laugh at yeah if we want to talk about proportions the pro-gay lobby would say it's like 11 to 1 which doesn't actually work in their favor. They say it's 11 heterosexual pedophiles to one homosexual pedophile, which, by the way, the proportion of homosexuals or heterosexuals to homosexuals in our society is closer to 19 to 1, if I had to guess. But so there's already a disproportionate number, but that is really on the low end. Uh, child sex abuse among boys is more than likely vastly underreported. So we have to take that into consideration. We also have very high profile examples of where this takes place. The Catholic Church, the whole abuse scandal in the Catholic Church was about gay priests. So we got to consider that. We got to look at the gay heroes like Foucault and uh, Harvey Milk. Both of them had a propensity for underage minors. So we, we have a lot of data in the opposite direction. We also have that adoptive family or those foster parents that were pimping out their kids. So that happened like within the last two years, that might've actually been a uh, ground changing event in the acceptability of homosexuality in our current society. That might've actually changed a lot of this in the, in the biblical morality's favor, if anything. So the data is not going to support him. There's a lot of data out there that suggests that it's disproportionately higher. So I've seen numbers in the mid thirties as far as the percentages go. So what he said has no basis in, in reality. And we also got to keep in mind the child sex abuse rates among homosexual, homosexual uh, people. A lot of them experience this growing up. So we got to keep that in mind. That's something that the APA does not want to admit, uh, that this trauma exists in a lot of people's past, and it has lasting impact and damage that people need to turn to Christ for. That's the solution, but there, there, there's not a secular solution for this. But what he said is so out of touch with reality. So we just got to point it out, laugh at it, and then deliver some truth bombs on top of that. So what else does he talk about in the session? So a couple things that come to mind. Art Pereira is not actually in a church. Which is pretty interesting that this guy has so much advice for the church 
but he's not actually in a church. He used to be a youth pastor. And last time I checked, he's still listed on that we- on the website of the church that he was a youth pastor for. They still have him listed. Now, they don't have an up-to-date website whatsoever. But that's just interesting. So he's not currently a youth pastor. He's currently a Revoice staffer. So he's not actively in a church, yet he's trying to give advice on churches on how to hire homosexual and transvestite ministers. That's a lot of hypocrisy there. A lot of you really don't know what you're talking about kind of vibes that I'm getting from that. So there's that aspect. Another aspect that he talks about, and Greg Coles is Evangelical Covenant Church. That is a liberal denomination, and we've talked about that in the past. They were one of the first denominations to openly embrace critical race theory. They've also embraced side B theology on a denominational level, and they have female pastors. So really none of this is a shock. So that's where Greg Coles is at. And he said that that was one of the denominations that they would recommend. Otherwise, Art Pereira says that, you know, non-denominational churches are really where you should look to because denominations are, you know, messier. Another thing that he said that is that Revoice is involved with training denominations and churches. So that's his job at Revoice is he's training denominations and churches. He also mentioned a cohort of people and ministry leaders or seminarians that he's leading as well. But he mentioned that he was training a small denomination in Canada on how to be more accepting towards the side B theology posture. These are all interesting tidbits that you know i learned from watching this webinar and it's a good scout report on what and where side b theology is at in the current church landscape so i hope this was useful to you all hopefully we shine a light on a very nefarious movement inside and infiltrating the church and that's kind of what we do here at evangelical dark web so you definitely want to like and subscribe because i suffered through this uh 90 plus minute ish webinar and here are some of the highlights so thank me now by liking and subscribing uh otherwise have a blessed day and we will catch you on the next one